0: You're listening to Canada's Court, your home for all your Canadian basketball needs. Here's your host, Philip Drost.
1: Hello and happy Canada Day. It's a pleasure to be back on with you guys and, and chatting with you. Today I've got two special episodes coming out since it's Canada Day. I figure two Canadian, uh, two Canadians on the podcast is better than just one. So the first episode that will come out today is Dick Steves. Uh, for those of you who watch the Jordan documentary, though you'll remember uh, the episode, and those of you who just uh, know basketball in general will remember the episode about Michael Jordan and the Dream Team, and Dick Steves, uh, Canadian from New Brunswick, he refed the gold medal game, and uh, he has some great insights into Michael Jordan, the Dream Team, and uh, for those of you who watched The Last Dance, we'll chat a bit about that as well. Then, after that, the other episode you'll see on your feed today, Naira Fields. Uh, She played in the WNBA, played professionally, recently retired, was a member of the Olympic team and the uh, gold medal team, the team that won uh, gold at the Pan Am Games in Toronto. So, great conversation there. You'll hear both those episodes today. Thank you so much, and uh, let's get to it. Dick, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast.
0: Morning, Phil.
1: How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing these days?
0: Oh well, I'm like everybody else, going a little stir crazy. I guess hanging around the house all day, but uh, uh, I think this, as you mentioned, this last dance thing is sort of uh, something that gives us a, a little bit of a um, flashback to uh, you know our, our basketball roots, and uh, yeah, it gives us a little bit of a, a place to go, I guess, and get away from this virus.
1: <laughs> yeah. What was it like to? see a, a few little glimpses of yourself in the documentary
0: well the uh, the uh, I think it was episode 5 there was quite a bit of footage there from the uh, from the gold medal game in Barcelona and um, yeah it was sort of like a trip down memory lane really because you know it was a, a special time and I mean obviously a special team and to hear some of the commentary you know from some of the guys you know like um, like magic Johnson and and uh, Chris mullen and, and uh, some of the other players given sort of like their their take on what it was all about was was sort of a special thing to you know to see that background information
1: was there anything that stood out to you from that section on the dream team that you, you didn't know before
0: uh, no not really um, because I, there was a documentary as well on uh, on the NBA channel uh, called called the dream team and it's about an hour and a half long and There was a lot of footage in there as well, which I think was incorporated into the last dance, uh, into the last dance episode, especially that, um, that uh, scrimmage game that they had down in Monaco before they headed up to Barcelona. Uh, That was sort of cracked up to be maybe one of the, one of the best practice scrimmages of all time amongst (laughs) NBA guys, because there was a lot of trash talking going on between, you know, uh, Magic Johnson and his crowd and Michael and his crowd, and I think, like Chris Mullen said, uh, you know, whenever, whenever somebody tweaked Michael the wrong way, I mean, it was on, and uh, that uh, that scrimmage game was uh, was apparently something to see.
1: As I'm uh, finding out from this documentary, it really did not take much to to set Michael Jordan off. He pretty much used uh, any excuse to uh, <laughs> to go at someone.
0: Yeah, he uh, that's a, that's the thing that I think that made him so great. I mean. Um, boy, once he was like a dog with a bone. You know, if he got something in his head, I mean, he was going to go after it, and there was nobody going to stop him. And I think that's what made him as great a player as he was with that with that self motivation, that intrinsic motivation. And uh, and it wasn't only on the offensive end of the court either, which which I think uh, maybe a lot of people don't realize. I mean, we all know he could score, but man, the way that that guy played defense, you know, along with Scottie Pippen especially in that Coach game in the Olympics. I mean, they were on, they were like a, a couple of buzzers on a dead snake <laughs> that night. <laughs> I felt bad for Tony because, I mean, he uh, he was in for a long night with those two cats on him, and uh, I guess they, they wanted to send a message to him and to Jerry Krauss, you know, because Kraus was holding up uh, an extension on uh, Pippen's contract, and Pippen took it sort of personal, and uh, they just wanted to... To let uh, Kraus know that maybe Kukoc wasn't as good as he thought they were.
1: <laughs> so you had uh, you had the USA versus Croatia in that second game they played the the gold medal game. It was the first one where they really went at Kukoc. In that in the game you raft was it was it the same level of intensity or had they kind of I want to say cooled off but not not gone at him quite as hard as the first
0: time. Well, they, they didn't go at Tony as hard in the uh, in the championship game as they did in. in regular uh, round robin game. Um the, but the thing about the um the championship game, I think like with maybe you know, ten or eleven minutes gone in the first in the first half, I think Croatia was actually ahead, I don't know, it was like 25 24 or something like that. They were ahead by one or two points. And then then all of a sudden you could just see that the Americans said, Okay, boys, it's time to kick this thing into gear and uh, get this thing over with and uh, so we can get on the airplane and you know get, get it back home. So that's when guys like Michael and Magic sort of turned the screws down offensively and, and sort of went at the Croatians and, uh, and sort of put the game away. I think they were ahead by 15 or so at halftime or something. I think they eventually won by 30 points or 32 points or something like that.
1: What's it like to know that you raft probably – not probably the the greatest basketball team ever assembled. I think that's fair to say, don't you?
0: Yeah, the, um, there were some interesting um, some interesting interviews conducted by by uh, the NBA um, public relations people uh, years after years after the uh, Dream Team um, in, in Barcelona, and these were with NBA players. We actually come over like guys like Dirk Nowitzki from from Germany and uh, Manu Ginobili from from Argentina and Sharonis Marshalonis from from uh, Lithuania, and there were a number of guys like uh, Tony Parker from France, and they asked those guys. They said like like what was it that really tweaked you guys to sort of turn you on to basketball? And almost to a man, they said it was watching the Dream Team in the uh, in the '92 Olympics. Um, And I remember Don Nelson, who was, uh, Donnie Nelson, who was a general manager with the Dallas Mavericks uh, in the NBA when his father was coaching, uh, Don Nelson, and he was coaching a Lithuanian team um, in Barcelona, which was part of the former Soviet Union, and uh, he said that the dream team to basketball was like what the Beatles were to music, like when they came to North America. Uh, and, and the way that they transformed uh, the music industry. and He, he sort of said that uh, the dream team going to Barcelona and then the spread of the NBA and basketball itself around the world was comparable to that um, Beatles analogy, which was uh, you know, pretty influential when you, when you think about it all. So.
1: What was it like for you at those games? What was it like being around the, the basketball part of those Olympic games?
0: yeah well, when you went to the games i mean well it was like a it was like a circus because i mean everybody wanted to see these guys i mean um they were the story of the 92 olympics and as a matter of fact i know the us olympic committee got a little upset with it all like after about the first week because they thought that the dream team was sort of sucking all the energy out of the games because everything all the press everything you can imagine was was geared towards the dream team and they were saying hey listen there's other athletes you know competing in different sports here but when you went to their games i mean the celebrities at these games i mean was you know there was, you know a couple of seats over from him, was evander hollywood hollyfield who was you know a heavyweight champion of the world and then sitting behind us one evening watching them with spike lee uh the um, new york character who's uh, you know quite involved with basketball and is a, just a lot of production stuff himself for television and for the movies and there was guys like uh you know jack nicholson was there and michael douglas was there and i mean if you just name it they were pretty much there and um and to and to try and get a ticket to those dream team games i mean was like that was next to impossible and people were paying ridiculous prices like from scalpers outside you know to get in and watch these guys play i mean they they, they were just a, a phenomenon for a, a certain time in, in the history of basketball, and, and everybody wanted to see them, so so it was pretty incredible, really.
1: Were you able to go, like, were you allowed to go watch whatever game you want, or were you really just going to the games you reffed?
0: No, uh, that was the thing about, <laughs> and I, I remember telling somebody this before, and they said, geez, you know, there's something wrong with that, but like when you go to the Olympics and let's say you're involved with basketball or you're involved with track or volleyball or whatever, as an official, you're sort of engrossed in that particular sport and sort of like that sport only. Cause I said to somebody, I said I had to come home from the Olympics to find out what actually went on there. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds sort of funny, right? But, uh, we went to all the basketball games because you want to go and support your fellow officials who were refereeing, you know, at different times. And, uh, and, of course, you want to see the dream team because, I mean, you know, you're looking at a, uh, you know, probably, as you say, you know, maybe the greatest the greatest basketball team or maybe even, as some people say, the greatest sports team of all time because that whole dream team concept became infectious. I mean, you know, now there was a hockey dream team, you know, like with uh, uh, you know, Canadian superstars and things of that nature, and um, so... Yeah, we, we went to watch the Dream Team whenever we could get a chance to, or or any other good games as well, and, uh, you know, there were a bunch of those pretty competitive games. Matter of fact, one of the real competitive games there was the game between, uh, the bronze medal game between um, Lithuania and the unified team, and uh, the unified team was really the Soviet Union, but as you're well aware, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union had happened, and um the Soviet Union had tried to invade Lithuania, and uh, um, Sabonis and some of the guys. Well, when they played in that bronze medal game, they sort of took that sort of personal. So that that was a really tough basketball game, and uh, to see the Lithuanians come out on top of um, on top of this of the um, unified team, uh, Lithuania went crazy for a few days, and Sabonis and the boys did some serious partying, from what I heard. <laughs>
1: So explain to me a bit about how it works. How because you obviously don't know going in that you're going to be refing the gold medal game. When do you sort of get that assignment?
0: Uh, excuse me. Well, what happens, Phil? I mean, I was there as a neutral official, and um, because Canada hadn't qualified, and, and just based on previous tournaments that I'd been to, and I guess maybe a bit of a reputation as you know maybe not a bad official. That's how I got invited. And as a neutral, you're going to get um, you're going to get the tougher games, uh, the more competitive games. And um, in Barcelona uh, yeah, in Barcelona, there's there's 12 teams in the tournament. There's six and two pools, and they play round robin in the pool. And then the top four teams cross over in the playoffs, in the quarterfinals and semifinals. And the bottom two teams in each pool, uh, they play in a classification tournament. Um, you know, those four teams that didn't qualify for the playoffs, I never saw them in the tournament at all uh because I was you know I was getting good games like right out of the right out of the shoot I get Brazil against Yugoslavia, which is a pretty good basketball game and um and then as long as you you know as long as your games progress and and you don't have any problems and things seem to go okay, then they'll continue to give you you know some of the better games um and then when the round robin was over and the crossover started, I was assigned a quarterfinal game between uh, who played in that game? Oh yeah, Germany against uh, against the unified team. And uh, a real good ball game. The unified team beat Germany by I don't know, five or six. And then and then the assignments come out for the semifinal game, and I wasn't on the list. I, I didn't get a semifinal game. And, that sort of gave me a real good feeling because if you get a semifinal game, you're probably not going to get the final. So when I didn't get a semi, I was sort of, you know, it's okay, you know, we got a shot at this. And then, and of course, a couple of days later, they slide a slip of paper under your door at your, uh, at your dormitory, uh, which is like an assignment sheet, and it says, uh, you're doing a big one uh, tomorrow night, and uh, congratulations. <laughs>
1: How important you don't
0: you, you don't sleep a whole lot that night anyway.
1: <laughs> How important was that for you to, to be able to to do that game?
0: Well, um, it was. Well, it's sort of like the top of the mountain, right? So I've said to a couple of people, you know, it's almost like you know if you're going to climb Mount Everest, that's like the top of Mount Everest for for amateur basketball officials. Um, and it was a sense of accomplishment because uh, you know it's getting near the end of your career, and you know to there's not a whole lot of guys get to do those games. In <laughs> <laughs> um, fact, I think there's only been two Canadians: Ron Foxcroft, the guy who invented the uh, Fox 40 whistle, and myself. I think we're the only two to uh, to do the gold medal game in in, uh, in the Olympics. But um, it's it's just a sense of accomplishment and. And, and, and a feeling that you know, hey, you listen. I'm a, I've been a part of history here, so that was uh, it was a great ride.
1: <laughs> what's it like in that in that game as you're as the ball's getting tossed up? I know it was your your assistant who did the toss, but what it's what's it like just just seeing that start of that game unfold?
0: Well, um, the, the thing about that was when Ziggy tossed the ball up. My partner, Wojciech from Poland, when when Ziggy tossed the ball up. Like, like you couldn't see, because there was like it just looked like a million flash bulbs going off. I mean, people with cameras and every other thing, and uh, it took you like a couple of seconds for your eyes to focus. <laughs> once that ball went up, and, and the excitement in the place, uh, again, to you know, with, uh, with with this team, and and obviously the fact that it's uh, you know the, the championship game and it's a high-profile game, it was just to. It was just something to be around. It was, it was really uh, a special, special time for sure.
1: Now I understand you almost, or nearly, or at least maybe considered giving Charles Barkley a technical. What, what's the story there? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. There's I don't know. I don't know where that rumor got started, <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't give him to you. But what happened was at the end of the first half, the time is running down, and. Charles has got the ball on the wing, and, and, uh, you know, there's like seven or eight seconds to go, and he's got to do something with it, so he decides that he's going to shoot it. And Dino Rajov, 6'10", kid from Yugoslavia, or from Croatia, he comes out, and and he's going to guard Barkley. And Barkley sees this, so what Barkley does is he jumps into Dino, and and Dino goes up, and he had jumped a little bit into Barkley, and there's contact and Barkley shoots the ball and and it doesn't go in, so he turns to me and he wants a foul call. and uh, I just I just said I said nah, I said you jumped into him that's not going to happen for you, and then um, now the Americans are coming off the bench because it's halftime and and they're heading right for the exit where we're standing where Barkley and I were standing, and the first guy to come was Mike Shushetsky from he was assistant coach. And I just looked at Mike. I said, "Mike, he jumped into him," and he said, "Yeah, no problem." And that was all there was to it. But, uh, Is but it people think the, sorry, go ahead. people think I hit him with a T, but I really didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is it intimidating at all? I mean, you, you were you were an amateur ref. You, you didn't really ref those guys quite as much as like say an NBA official. And to have a big guy like Charles Barkley <laughs> right there in your face was it was it ner- make make you nervous at all, or you were too experienced at that point?
0: No, I mean, uh, the thing about these guys, I mean, that was a really easy basketball game to referee because, I mean, the skill level was so high. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, um, I had had Charles before in my first international tournament, or one of my first ones back in 1983, when he was playing for the Americans at the World Student Games in in Alberta. And uh, I had him in a game against – Australia, I guess it was, and there was a a situation where Charles was in a collision with somebody, and I was running, and the only way I could avoid the collision was I had to jump over him and uh, call the foul, and and then then he said something, and we had a little conversation, and then he sort of puts his arm around me and gives me a little bit of a squeeze, you know. Cause he he had fired an elbow at somebody and I told him, I said, listen, I said, save that for the Cubans. Okay. I said, I don't want to see any more of that here tonight. So he gives he says, okay, ref, he gives me a little squeeze. And I thought he was going to break my sternum. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's a pretty powerful kid. You know, he's he's about six foot five and and, uh, they they don't call him the round mound or rebound for uh, no reason because he's pretty solid put together. Um, but, no, I mean, these guys These guys were really good in the, in the game. And, I mean, uh, like I say, the skill level was so high, I mean, pretty hard for even the officials to screw that up. So,
1: <laughs> I bet you most people wouldn't have known that Charles Barkley spent a, a brief amount of time in Alberta.
0: Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that, uh, that uh, World University students team that the Americans had were coached by um, – Norm Stewart from University of Missouri he was the head coach and uh Bobby Knight was up there he, uh, he was one of the spectators and he was sort of scouting the team because he was trying to finalize his team for the 1984 Olympics in uh, in Los Angeles and um uh, one of the nicknames ever Berkeley they called him the bread truck uh, cuz like I say he was built like a bread truck so <laughs> uh and one of the sports guys up there said, if if uh, if Knight cuts the bread truck, he says, I'm never hoping for the Americans again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So what was it like in that game to also, I mean, there's so much going on about Michael Jordan right now. What was it like to see uh, arguably one of the best players uh, of all time do his thing?
0: Yeah. Well, it, actually, it was... It was a real. It's a team effort with these guys, and um, I think that the two things that, that really impressed me were, uh, like when these guys get out on a break, just how quick they move the basketball. I mean, when if somebody scored at the other end, and, and the Americans got the ball, or they or they got a rebound, it was like two dribbles, three seconds, and boom, the ball was in the basket at the other end. I mean, it was just how quick they were, um, and. And they just seemed to have a lot of fun playing. Um, the, um, there was no animosity; it seemed like between the players, and nobody really cared who scored. It was just like they just looked like they were having fun.
1: Well, and, uh, there was uh, there was no animosity because uh, Isaiah Thomas wasn't there, I think.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Uh, I gotta ask you this, and uh, y- you can feel free to. Uh, say uh you don't want to answer but i gotta ask in your opinion who is the greatest basketball player of all time
0: i I don't even get close it's uh to me it's michael jordan
1: okay not even close because there there, there is a debate going on right now is is lebron james in that conversation but to you not even close
0: so to me it's not even close because uh, um the thing that's the thing that sets Michael apart from Michael uh, from uh, LeBron James, is, well, there's two things. Michael's got six NBA championships, and LeBron's got three. I think, right? Yeah. Now, that's number one. And number two is I don't think that LeBron brings the intensity to the game that Michael does. LeBron's a great player. Don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, he can score and all that stuff. But I don't think. I don't think he he plays defense as well as Michael did. Michael was a bitch on the defensive end of the court. I mean, he was all NBA defensive team a number of times. And excuse me, and to get the players around him jacked up to you know to want to be and play as hard as Michael did, that's something I don't think LeBron brings out in his guys. Um, the other thing too, you get you got to go back to the to the twenty oh four Olympics in. Um, in Athens, Greece. Now, the Americans—they got a little slack after they won a couple of gold <laughs> medals there in '92 and '96, and and they weren't sending the top pros, and they were sending guys who really maybe weren't all that motivated. And in 2004, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Carmelo Anthony were on that American team that got the rear ends handed to them in Athens at the Olympics. So I, I guarantee you, if Michael Jordan is on that team, the Americans are not going to get the rear ends handed to him. So these are just a, a few of the things that, to me, make Michael, I put him at the, on the top of that pedestal. Now, where would I, where would I fit um, LeBron James? Well, uh, I, I would put him on my top five players of all time. My top five team would be Michael uh, would be Magic Johnson at the point, Michael Jordan at the two spot, at the shooting guard. Uh, Larry Bird would be my small forward because he's just a great player. I would put LeBron as my, as my power forward, and my center would be you know, the two surest points in the history of basketball, which was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> or Louis Alcindor, who played at UCLA. So LeBron would be in my top five, but he, he's, to me, in that greatest of all time uh, conversation – uh, Michael wins. All
1: right. Well, there we go. We got we got the answer from someone who uh, saw Michael in person. So, uh, but I'm go- just
0: I'm just that's just my opinion. Yeah. No,
1: and and that's <laughs> fair. That and that's all. Any of these conversations really are, right? I mean, none of us can actually make a decision on on who's the best at what, but uh, we all get to have our yep. own opinion. That's the fun of it. No, absolutely. <laughs> so now I want to chat a, a little bit more about your career because you've obviously refed. More than just the uh, the uh, gold medal game in Barcelona, uh, but first, tell me a bit about how you got started. I understand uh, it wasn't exactly you, you weren't always planning to be a a ref when you were playing basketball.
0: No, it all got started actually back in high school. Phil, uh, I was um, playing for Moncton High School here in, in the city, and. Uh, it, it, it all happened over a technical foul I got in the, game. <laughs> in the game one night down in Sussex. We were playing Sussex High School, I guess, and it was on a Friday night. And for some reason, I must have said something to an official, and he gave me a technical foul, and the, and the coach took me on the game and set me on the bench. And um, the next day, we were playing Sackville High School. You know, It was for, sort of like for the Championship of the Wake Conference, and the winner of that was going to go to the provincials. So anyway, I get down to the gym, and the coach says, oh, by the way, he says, you're not dressing today. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you got a technical foul last night. And I said, well, so? And he said, well, he said, you're not dressing. So Ed Skiffington happened to be in the office when this conversation was, was taking place between me and the coach, and, and uh, Ed could sense that I was a little irritated. And uh, so he said to me, "He says, he said, get your sneakers. You're coming with me. So said, okay. So I grabbed I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to a referee basketball game. So I said, well, I don't know anything about, <laughs> <laughs> about refereeing. So anyway, Skip said, don't worry, I'll teach you. So anyway, we go and referee this game, and uh, it was a high school game between Harrison Trimble and uh, Simons from St. John. And uh, after the game, Skip said, you know, he said, uh, you know, maybe you might be interested in doing some intramural games at the you know, at the high school, you know, you used to play intramural you know, basketball at lunch hours. And so I said, sure. So that's where it all started, and that's how that's how I got hooked uh, on refereeing basketball. Because, like, I, I wasn't a very good player, and it it turned out to be a great way for me to uh, you know stay stay in touch with the game, uh, because you know I was never going to make it as a player, you know, at the university level or anything like that. But uh, that's, that's why it, uh, it was a great way when I went to university too, because you know you make a few bucks refereeing. Going
1: that's the uh, that's the same reason I do this podcast. Uh, I wasn't going to be making uh, making it anywhere as a basketball player, but I can. I'm really good at talking about basketball, so uh, <laughs> here I am. How long did it take uh, before you started? Like, how long did it take for you just doing local games before you got your first international break?
0: Well, that would have been from like uh, maybe 1965 till 83, maybe like 18 years um, to 83, I guess. Uh, what happened was, Phil, the uh, the World Student Games were being played in, in Edmonton, Alberta, back in 1983, and and Canada had to have uh, a number of officials had to supply a number of officials for that tournament, and uh, so they they asked the number of guys across the country, or, you know, how many guys were 10 or 15 guys or Maybe 20 guys to to get what they called a FIBA card, which was an international license um, to referee at those levels. And uh, Bill Ritchie, a guy in Fredericton, who was very influential with the Canadian Basketball uh, Referees Association, he asked me if if, if I'd be interested. And I said sure. So. Uh, We got a license and went out there, and and, uh, that's where it all started, the international focus of it all at the uh, World World Student Games in 1983 in Edmonton, Alberta. And then from there, it just snowballs. Uh, For some reason, the assigners who were there, uh, I never met them, but uh, um, they just kept giving me some pretty good games. And uh, the funny thing about it was we were doing guys games, I was doing guys games all week, you know, and had some pretty good games, and uh, when the playoff section started, Canada had qualified for the playoffs, so we just sort of automatically figured, okay, well, we're we're sort of done, you know, because of neutrality, uh, and we were out in the, one of the bars there <laughs> after the preliminary round was over, and the guy who was sort of looking at the officials, he comes up to me, and Says to me, he says. By the way, he said you got a game tomorrow morning. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah. I said, you got a game tomorrow morning. He said, it's, it's a Romania against China, a girls' game. And uh, and I said, well, I said I haven't done any girls' games all week. He said, well, you got one tomorrow morning. So <clears throat> so sure enough, I get back to the uh, hotel and <clears throat> there's the assignment underneath the door. And, uh, so it did the game and, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. I mean, Romania had a very good basketball team and they, they beat, the, they beat the Chinese. And then uh, a couple of days later, I get assigned the, uh, the championship game between, uh, Romania and the USA. And, uh, and that's where the, uh, international career all started and why these guys sort of put me on those games. I have no idea, except maybe I must've, have, must've have done something right, I guess, and, uh,
1: yeah, I, I think That's it's safe. It to say, I think it's safe to say you probably did a, an okay job with the games if uh, if they kept bringing you back. I I know uh, you ref you, you do some still games in New Brunswick, but I don't know if you you ever ref me. But if you did, I'm sure you gave me uh, at least five fouls. That's how much I averaged uh, during my playing career. Uh, uh, so after that, so you you had a lengthy international career. After that, tell me about kind of what it was like doing some of those international games. I imagine uh, with with, uh, national pride on the line, sometimes those games probably got a bit heated.
0: Yeah, the... um, People don't realize... Well, first off, with the the European part of basketball, I mean, um, I I got exposed to those guys the first time, really, was in 1986. I was invited to a, a... club championship tournament down in, uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And um, the fans down in Argentina, I mean, they are something else. I mean, the atmosphere that they bring to a game is just unbelievable. You know, they, they show up an hour prior to tip-off, and they start singing, and then they got the drums going, and they don't stop until the game is over. And uh, the better that the home team plays, the louder that these guys get. <laughs> uh and this is where I was introduced to European basketball, really, because the team that I refereed in the final of that tournament was, was a club team from Lithuania, Zalgrias. And uh, I'll tell you how good these guys were. Four starters on that Zalgrias team were also four starters on the Soviet national team. Oh, wow. And this is where I first met the guy that I think was probably the best center that I ever saw bar none was a guy named arvidas sabonis oh yeah and, and this is when sabonis was at the top of his game um so that was a pretty good club team and again this was before the uh, the breakup of the soviet union um and uh they played a team from argentina in the final and they, they had a great guard but the name of cortijo and uh, i mean it was it was a real it was a great basketball game and um uh, Lithuania uh, uh, was just too strong for them.
1: And I'll tell you how good
0: these, this team was. These guys went on like two years later. When the Soviet national team won the Olympic gold medal in uh, in South Korea when they beat the when they beat the Ugos in the championship game. Uh, so that was my first uh, introduction to basketball, you know, with the Europeans. And then, and of course, the next year I was invited to. Uh, Referee the European championships in Athens Greece um, and uh man I tell you it was unbelievable over there because the passion that these as I say the passion that these fans bring to the game is something else, especially the Greeks i mean they they've got to be probably one of the most patriotic uh nationalities in the world you know next to the Americans for sure um <laughs> but the, this tournament over there was uh was played in a in, in Athens and in, in a stadium that was sort of ironically called peace and friendship
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the thing about it there wasn't a whole lot of peace and friendship going on once you threw the ball up <laughs> uh because this this was for the championship of Europe and it was a you know like a prisoner take all take all mentality i mean there was no quarter asked no quarter given and um Again, there were, there were 12 teams at the European Championships. And this is where I sort of got a, a couple of lessons in, um, in, in stuff like uh, geography because Israel was in the tournament. So I said to the, one of the guys when we were there, I said, Israel, I said, I said, what's Israel doing playing in the European Championships? Because the last time I checked, they weren't part of Europe. And the guy said, yeah, I'm Dick, he said, uh, he said, you don't think the Arabs are going to let them play with them, do you? So, <laughs> so, so I guess I realized why Israel was in the European championship. Um, but uh, if, if there was ever a Cinderella story in basketball, I mean, that tournament was, was it, um, because the Greeks, um, when, when the pool play was over, the Greeks had finished fourth in their pool, um, and in the crossover game, the quarterfinal game, they played Italy, who finished first in the other pool. Italy had gone undefeated. And, um, excuse me, um, they went on to beat Italy. They upset them in the quarterfinal game. They beat them 90 to 78. And uh, a guy named Yvonne Manini, who was a great official from France and who would later on become a president of FIBA, um, Remember, he didn't speak a whole lot of English, but he said to me, "He said in, in French, he said this this is not a this, this game is not a gift." <laughs> but uh, it was a great game, and of course, the country was ecstatic. You know, when they when they beat the Italians, and then <clears throat> then uh, a couple of nights later, the, Greece goes on and and they upset Yugoslavia in the semifinal game, and. Uh, I think that was a three or four point game. It was a a real close ball game, and and so now they qualified for the final, and now they're playing the Soviet Union in the final. So here, here's the uh, the scenario: (laughs) Um, It's for the whole ball of wax, and you're playing, uh, you know, probably one of the best teams in the world. Um, And I remember walking down to walking into the like from the referees' room down the corridor into the gym, and or into arena and just picture this now. You got the Soviet Union warming up at one end, you got the Greek national team warming up at the other end. You got seventeen thousand fans that are just absolutely going crazy. And you got Eye of the Tiger being played over the loudspeaker system. And I remember <laughs> I remember I said to Sanchez I said, holy smokes, I said, "Like, are you kidding me? I said, like, Christ and the 12 apostles couldn't referee this game. <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, the uh, the, uh, the Greeks played a great game, and uh, they upset the Soviet Union in overtime, like 103, 101. A guy named Kaboris made two free throws with four seconds left in the game. And then the Soviets had the last shot, and, and they missed it. And now all of a sudden, the, the Greeks are the champions of Europe. So here was a team that was maybe maybe the fifth or sixth best team in europe at the time and like i say this was just a cinderella story where where they went on to uh, to capture the championship and uh, a lot of some people said it was one of the best games that had ever been played in europe like up until that time so it was uh, but i remember in that game i mean it, the intensity was just like unbelievable and uh, Sabonis wasn't there. I think if Sabonis is there, the Russians win that game. But uh, he had torn an Achilles, an Achilles tendon uh, after the, the tournament in um, in Argentina, so he was rehabbing that. But they had brought back a guy named Terechenko, uh, who was a monster. He was like about seven foot five, and he weighed about three forty. And I mean, it was a hard time just seeing around this guy. He was just that big. And he threw a dunk down with about eight minutes. To, remember looking at the clock, and it was exactly eight minutes to go in the game. And it, 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 that tied the score again. And there was a point there for about 10 seconds where, like, I could hardly breathe. It was just like the pressure. Uh, I'd never felt pressure like that in the game before. The pressure was just it almost choked off your breath. And it lasted for about 10 seconds. It was a bit scary, really, but... Uh, and then the next eight minutes, man. I mean, all hell broke loose. I mean, it turned into a great game, and the Russians had a, a shot to to win the game in regulation, and uh, they uh, didn't get it off before the uh, before the regulation ended. So it went into overtime, and uh, it was it was unbelievable. And the other thing about that game too was, after the game was over, there was. A contingency plan, that's like, is how we were going to get back to the hotel. And uh, you know, there there was supposed to be a special driver there with a special car to to pick us up because you know, people sort of figured, well, maybe you know, the Russians are going to win this thing, and you know, we better have some security available. So anyway, when the um, when the Greeks won, I mean, all all those plans went to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't find anybody, you know, associated with any, with anything, and uh, so we wind up getting a ride back to the hotel with the uh, guy on the uh, who was the standby official was a guy named Vorovnik from Israel, and he always had bodyguards with him wherever he went. Of course, the Israelis, right? I mean, no question. I mean, those guys are always targets. But uh, so anyway. We hitch a ride with him and his bodyguards uh, back to the hotel, and it's first time I'd ever driven in a in a car with uh, an Uzi sitting between two guys in the front seat. You know, so if, wow. if anybody attacked us, I mean, these Uzis, <laughs> wow, are, uh, we'll do a number on them.
1: So is that why you you mentioned the, the pressure when that dunk was thrown down? Is that why uh, you you felt that pressure because you just knew. This could be an incredibly hostile crowd if, if things go poorly
0: well, yeah, to, to uh, just expand on that a little bit, Phil uh, wh- one of the um, commissioners on the game was a guy by the name of um, uh, David Turner from England, and uh, the next year we're, we're in Bar- uh, I'm sorry we're in uh, South Korea at the Olympics, and uh, we we're having lunch one day and, and David. Turner said to me, "He says, you know, Dick. He said that game, he said, was the most volatile atmosphere he says I've ever been in in a basketball game. He said it was just. He said that thing could have really gone south in a hurry. And I said, yeah, tell me about it, because I said I was the guy out there with the damn whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I mean, David Turner had a lot of exposure in Europe. I mean, you know, he would have been all over. But uh, even he recognized the fact that uh, that there was." you know, uh, matter of fact, I, I think like at the end of the game, there was something like a couple of hundred cops that they had come in there, and they were surrounding the court just in case you know there was going to be an issue. And uh, so yeah, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty volatile atmosphere there for a while, for, for sure.
1: A little bit different than refing a, a game between Moncton High School and Fredericton High School.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it, well, the, the thing is, I mean, um, the. Um, like, that's not a game between, like you say, like Monten High and Fredericton mm-hmm. High School. I mean, this is a game between countries. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of like pride is on the line, you know? I mean, and, and, and of course, for the Greeks to, you know, pull off the upset that they did was, you know, just unbelievable. And, of course, you know, like I say, they're very nationalistic, and, and uh, they took that as, you know, this is your David and Goliath scenario, you know, and um, – Know, they were they were pretty happy about it all. As a matter of fact the country went nuts for like three days. So. <laughs> would
1: that have been your, your toughest assignment, would you say? Would that have been the, the hardest it got?
0: Oh, no question. I mean that was uh that that, that was what we call in, in officials uh, language and we call that a ball buster. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was a tough, tough basketball game.
1: After that I imagine games just seem a lot more easy when you when you've experienced that. <laughs>
0: Well, well, it's like anything. I mean, you know, once you experience something like that, then the uh, you know any subsequent stuff that happens, yeah, it becomes a you know a bit easier to handle. There's no question about that. And uh, uh, yeah, but the funny thing was with with the Greeks. So, uh, I had them three times in that tournament. I had them against Spain when the, when the, uh, Spain beat them in the preliminary round, and then I had them against Italy when they beat Italy, and then of course they beat. Um, they beat the Russians in the final. But then a couple of years later, I got invited back to the European Championships again. That time was in Rome. And um, I wound up having the Greeks over there three times in that tournament. Wow. Uh, they uh, they lost to Czechoslovakia in that tournament in overtime. And, um, and then they, they beat France and they beat Bulgaria. But, uh, yeah, I got to know the Greeks pretty well. and. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, sometimes that's not a good thing to see a team as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I
1: can imagine that even because then uh, people's memories start to to kick yeah. in. And if you made one bet, called in, like, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but, right, I'll i tell you a story, about I don't know if you got time here or not. Ap- but,
1: uh, look, the thing about podcasts is we got as much time as we need. So go ahead.
0: Okay, <laughs> perfect. That that tournament in Rome in '91 was was sort of funny. I was uh, g- again invited as a neutral here from North America with, with a guy named Jimmy Burr from uh, from the U.S., a, a great college official down there. And um, the f- remind me to tell you a story about the shopping trip too, okay? In case I forget, yeah, we'll do. <laughs> uh, the first night there, uh, Greece is playing um, Italy, and uh, Jimmy and I we'd refereed earlier in the day. And um, so he says to me, he says, well, who's going to win this game? And I said, well, I said, oh, I, said I think Italy will, Italy will beat these guys pretty easy. So he said, well, he said, I'm not hanging around to watch it then. So he said, and I said, well, I'm not either. So anyway, we jumped in the car and headed back to the hotel. So the next morning around 9 o'clock, uh, my phone rings, and uh, it's, it's one of the assigners, and he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm sleeping. And he said, well, he said, you better get down here. He said, there's a big meeting going on. I said, whoa. So anyway, I go down, and, and apparently, what had happened in that in that Greece Italy game was all hell broke loose, and two officials on the game was a Russian guy and a or a Soviet guy and a Spanish guy, and apparently, the game got out of control, and uh, <clears throat> um, they weren't very happy with how the how the uh, officials handled it. So, so anyway, the next day. Well, anyway, and the whole purpose of this meeting was to say, okay, boys, you, you guys got to turn the screws down here from now on and make sure that this doesn't happen again. So the next day uh, I get assigned to uh, the Greeks, and um, they're playing Czechoslovakia. And uh, so I said, okay, to myself, all right, you know, I'm, you're going to get these guys because you're a neutral and they're one of the better teams. And so anyway, don't they lose that game in overtime? like 120 to 110 or something like that. And then uh, I said, okay, that's all right. So the next day, I get Greece again. And this time they're playing France. So I'm saying to myself, okay, well, that's just bad luck. You know, you get them two days in a row. Okay. But then the assignments come out for the next day, and don't I have the Greeks again? (laughs) So I went to the assigner, and I said, Katleva I from Czechoslovakia, and I said, Lubo, I said, like, what are you trying to do to me? <laughs> and he said, well, he said, Dick, those those two officials from the first night, he said, we're sitting those two guys down. He said, they're not going to work any more games. So he said, you guys got to start, because you're going you're gonna, to get more games. And he says, you're going to get the Greeks, because he said, you seem to handle them pretty well. And So I said, listen, I said, Lubo, I said, I'm getting tired of them, and they're getting tired of me, so... <laughs> So anyway, I walk out onto the court for the for that third game with the Greeks, and and the Greek coach looks at me and he sort of turns his head and shrugs his shoulders. And so my reply, I just sort of turned my head and shrugged my shoulders and said, "Okay, pal, I'm here. You got to put up with me. So let's get on with it and (laughs) play the game." So, but uh, yeah, then. then a couple of days later, I got to tell you this, this was cool. Okay. We were staying at a really nice hotel and um, in the, in the uh, um, section of town where all the embassies are. And uh, the second night that we're there, we go back to the hotel, and there's a piece of luggage like in each official's room. Okay? Mm. And it's one of these suit bags, this nice leather suit bag, you know, you could. It's got like 96 compartments in it where you can put everything from soup to nuts. Right. And, uh, and this was compliments of the Italian basketball federation. So I said, okay, that's cool. Then the next night we come back to the hotel and there's uh, camcorders in each of our rooms. Well, we've all got separate rooms, right? But there's each guy's got a camcorder and I'm saying, wow, this is pretty cool. And, uh, it turns out these camcorders were around five hundred bucks, right? But they're geared for for the European system of, of recording, which was the pal cam system, so they're so, so of no use here in Canada or the U.S. So um, Burr and I we don't know what to do with these things. So one fellow said, "Well, he said, listen, he said I got a couple of uh, Romanian buddies of mine. You know, they wouldn't mind having those. So <laughs> so we sold them to those guys for a couple of hundred bucks apiece." So it, it was like a win-win, right? I mean, you know, they got a camcorder for a couple hundred for you know, a couple hundred bucks. It was worth what five hundred, and we made a couple hundred bucks. So <laughs> <laughs> but the the real key was the next day. They they told us they said, "Hey, listen, you got to be in the lobby t- tomorrow at one thirty. We're going shopping." And this was all this was all twelve officials. So so anyway, I got a couple of cars there for us, and they take us off to this department store, and, uh, or clothing store, I should say. And what happened was, the guy who owns this clothing store was a big supporter of the Italian Basketball Federation. And what he did was, he closed his store down from 2 o'clock until 4 o'clock that afternoon, so us 12 guys could go shopping, free of charge wow yeah wow (laughs) as a matter of fact we're in there about a half an hour and burr walks by me and and he's got like two hugo boss suits and a bunch of other stuff and he says dick he says kiss me he says see if i'm going to wake up (laughs) (laughs) and uh it it was a it was a little bit embarrassing really at the end of it because i mean like i was in you know, getting them fitted for a pair of slacks. You know, those was vanilla slacks. You know, they had the silk lining down inside, to down below the knees. You know, and then, then I come out of there, and, and this, this young know, lady who was looking after some of us. She said to me, she said, "Boy, she said, would this, would this tan suede jacket ever look nice on you with those slacks?" And I mean, <laughs> like I say, it was a bit embarrassing because you know, you didn't want to, you didn't want to abuse this thing, yeah, but I yeah. mean. A lot of the guys, I mean, they were loading up with stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and um, now fast forward to the championship game, okay? And it's going to be Yugoslavia against Italy. And uh, Rodriguez, my Greek referee friend, Costas rigas who I thought was the best referee I ever worked with on the international level, we were doing the championship game. And his wife comes over and, you know, she hugs us both and, And she says, you know, good luck tonight, guys. And and we're walking down the tunnel, like, hitting into the arena. And and Costa said to me, he says, you know, Dick, he says, "Um, Yugoslavia is going to beat Italy tonight. But he says, I'm not giving the clothes back. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... So, what, you, you did so many. I mean, just as we're talking here, it's championship game after championship game. You're doing some of the uh, the biggest games in the world. Did you ever consider uh, trying to go pro, trying to, to ref maybe in the NBA or something like
0: that? Well, back in, uh, I think it was 1975, um, I was invited to a, uh, an NBA trial camp down in um in New York at Brandeis High School, and that's up on the on the Upper West Side. And um, I, I was teaching physical education in a small high school up in Quebec at that time. And so, so I, I drove down to to this um, uh, camp, and um, I met a guy down there at the camp uh, who was um, uh, a New Yorker guy, a guy from Brooklyn, and. Um, he had been refereeing in the Eastern League, which is sort of like a semi-pro league down there, for about ten years, and he was he was there trying to trying to try out to you know to get into the NBA, and we got talking, and um, and he told me he said you know I said for a Canadian to come down here he says it's just gonna be pretty hard he says he says I don't even know he if I'm going to make it, and he had all of this experience and all of these connections and everything, so. So anyway, when the camp was over and everything, I went back home, and you know that was sort of the end of that. Uh, but the funny thing is, this guy that uh, that I sort of struck up the friendship with down there was a uh, he actually made the NBA that fall, and I was really happy for him. I saw him I saw him on TV, and this guy's name was Dick Bavada, wow, who was a, a legend in NBA official circles And, uh, and here's the real kicker. My roommate in Barcelona, Dick Bavetta. Wow, how cool is that? eh?
1: That's pretty cool, man. You should did you once he uh, he made it big time in the NBA? Did you ever uh, hit him up say, hey, look, can you uh, can you get me in there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, no. Dick told me some great stories. I mean, you know, back in back in those days, uh, and it was you know it was sort of a good news bad news scenario because. I mean, NBA officials, I mean, they're sort of like, they don't have a life, really, I mean, back in those days, because there was only two officials on a game, and like when you were on the West Coast swing, I mean, you know, you were in like Portland one night doing a game with, with a guy from Phoenix, okay, and then the next night, or maybe two or three nights later, now you're down in Los Angeles, and you, you're doing with a game with, with somebody from uh, from Texas, okay, you know, some official from Texas. So you never really got to, to, uh, you know, to spend a whole lot of time with any in, any particular officials. Whereas baseball guys, like when they go into, you know, referee or umpire baseball games, there's a crew of four guys, and they're together for like four days, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, they get to develop some camaraderie. But in the NBA, and it was a bit cutthroatish, because I mean. You want to be you want to be the best. You want to be considered for the playoffs because the playoffs are worth money to those guys, right? It's like yeah. it's, back in those days, it was ten grand a round. Oh wow! So so like if you if you went to the finals and you got uh, that's four rounds. I mean, you picked up an extra forty thousand dollars in in, uh, in bonus money, right? But Nick was telling me he said that the thing about it. Uh, and he was making good money. He was making about 200. I think he told me he was making about 285,000 a year, you know, plus his, you know, playoff stuff and money that they would make off of cashing in, you know, plane tickets, you know, because anything over two hours in a plane ride, they were first class tickets. So what they would do is they'd cash that ticket in, get a, uh, get an economy class seat and pocket the difference. Ooh, um, so they they were making some pretty good cash but he said to me he says you know Dicky says I had two daughters and he says I never saw them grow up. Oh wow. Yeah.
1: So that that Th- that, that, that was a bit tough. that was a
0: bit sad really, you know, when yeah. he told me that.
1: Yeah. No, and and that's a good point whereas where you're you're doing it you're you're away at different spurts but you're at least still you're still you're still able to go home. Yeah. No, that
0: was uh no that was quite the experience that one and uh I, I don't know if I've told you before or not, but uh you know there's um' I guess sometimes there's, there's things in life that you know that just happened, and you sort of wonder why they happened and uh like i'm I'm not one much for uh, you know trying to figure out the meaning of life or anything like that but you know, my biggest decisions every day are what am I having for breakfast and what time do I have to be at the golf course. You know, That's the extent of my stuff. <laughs> but uh, I remember in uh, 1984, um, the Olympics were being played in uh, Los Angeles, California. And um, Susan, the girl that I was going out with at the time, we were in a bar downtown, and um, we were watching the game and uh i said to her i said man i said well, you know to, to be able to officiate that game i said that would be sort of like one of the coolest things ever because like everybody watches that game you know i mean the Olympic final, there's no other game on that's the only game in the world that night and uh, the, this place we were in was a place called ziggy's it was a bar down on main street said i g g y s and uh my partner in Barcelona on the final game was a guy named who's Zik Z Y C H, and uh, we had a nickname for him. And here's the funny part: the nickname we had for him was Ziggy.
1: Well, there you go. <laughs> There's a the connection.
0: There, you know, and you wonder, you say, you know, is this coincidence or or what is it, or or is life all a script thing, right? You know, where <laughs> you're just sort of along for the ride. I don't yeah. know. <laughs>
1: And it's uh, and funny to say, you said, you know, it'd be you're the only game on that night. Well, I think you when you did that Barcelona game, that was probably the only sporting event really that anyone was watching that night, not just basketball game.
0: Yeah, the uh, I don't know if I told you this, before, but anyway, the next the, the day after that game, uh, I, was, I was flying up to uh, to Frankfurt. And I was going to overnight in Frankfurt and then fly back to Canada the following day. But when I was in the airport in, in Barcelona waiting for the Frankfurt flight, there was a, a sports reporter from Cologne, Germany, come over, and we got talking a little bit about the game the night before. And, and uh, just in the course of our conversation, he said to me, he said, do you know or he said, do you have any idea what the estimated television audience was for last night's game? And I said, I I have no idea. So he said, well, he said, they estimated that people who watched all or parts of that game would have been one and a half billion people. Wow. (laughs) And I got thinking about that after. And that was like at that time, that was about like 20% of the world population. (laughs) Because, I mean, opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies at the Olympics, I mean, the global audience for that is like in the billions and to have a game with that much, um, you know, that much of an audience, you're saying, "Holy smokes, that was that was, that was like something else." Because, uh, and I think the Super Bowl here a couple of years ago had something like one of the highest global ratings, uh, audience-wise, like at 104 million or something like that. But to work a game where you know one and a half billion people watch parts of that game was was something to see yeah absolutely
1: and tell me about so that was sort of the the end of your uh, international refing career at least why was that where you wanted to to end things
0: well I mean you know where do you go from the top of the mountain right
1: (laughs) that's a fair point
0: uh no then it became it became a thing for me that okay okay I've gotten there I had my day in the sun and uh now, if, if, you know, if I step aside and, and don't do college games and, you know, uh, CIEU championships and stuff like that, that's an opportunity now for somebody else to, you know, to maybe uh, step up and, and maybe get their career rolling, you know, because now I'm taking up a spot, right, that could belong to maybe somebody else. So that was sort of like why I stopped refereeing the college game. Um and that's like I haven't done a, a college game since like 1995. And that's, that's like 25 years ago. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and you see guys come along, you know, the, um, guys like uh, there's a great young official in Nova Scotia, a guy by the name of Matt Boyle, who's, who has an international card now. And uh, I think he's got, a, he's got a, a great career ahead of him, you know, even if things just work out for him. And uh, there's another guy in Alberta, John uh, John Wieland's son, Michael Michael Whelan. This kid's a great official. Um, matter of fact, he was he was scheduled to go to the Olympics in, in Korea, uh, not in Korea, but in uh, in Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, this year. And Of course, now they've been postponed until you know 2021. But uh, uh, Michael was I think 12 years old when I was refereeing. And, in Barcelona, and I met him. is his dad and I, John Whelan, who was a great official. We uh, uh, we worked a lot of games together, and, and Michael was with John at a tournament in Halifax one time. And uh, yeah, I remember that's the first time I met Michael. But, boy, he, he's a really good official. So hopefully you know, some of these guys would have an opportunity, and that's sort of like, like why I stepped aside uh, and sort of ended the international stuff. Plus, plus they take, uh, at, at age 50, you lose your international card. Um, the um, The whole idea is that uh, they want younger guys coming along. So, uh, and I was, I think, forty five or forty six when the um, Barcelona thing was going on. So, they would have phased me out anyway. But um, yeah, so it was like a win win for everybody. Fair enough. What
1: What advice would you give to any any young people right now who are? who are considering considering a career in officiating or started and, and, and want to do a good job like, like you did?
0: Well, the thing is, uh, I'll take you back to that first tournament I did back in the World University Games. Um, the following year I was in, uh, invited to a tournament in Brazil, and I, I found out later that the, the assigner down there was a guy named Radonir Shopper from um, from Yugoslavia and he was the uh, he was the head of the he was the president of the International Technical Commission and um, I found out he was the reason I got invited to that tournament and uh, so we, we were having dinner down there one night and and, and he's a real soft-spoken guy and um, I so I asked him I said listen I said you know what do I have to do to get better and, as an official and he told me he said well he said the um the thing you got to do he said do as many games as you can he said do, do as many games as possible because he said experience is a great teacher um, and he said the other he told me some positioning things but it, but the other thing that really stood out in my mind was he he told me he said he says i want you to go he says and watch the really good referees and he said see how these guys how they interact with the players and how they interact with the coaches and, uh, you know, the way they handle different situations in the game and, and the type of professionalism, uh, you know, that they bring to the game. And he says, emulate what those really good guys do. So that's what I did. And, um, and I would watch guys like, you know, like Ron Foxcroft was probably the best. Uh, he, he was a, a Canadian guy, and, you know, he, he worked a lot of NCAA games down in the U.S. Um, John McDonough from Montreal, He John had been a, an official at the Olympics in Montreal in, in 1976, and Donnie Klein was a great official out of Ontario. Unfortunately, he's passed away a few years ago. But then there were some other guys, some local guys, like Roger Caulfield from Nova Scotia, Like, I learned a lot from Roger just working games with him over the the years in the conference finals. And a couple of guys here in New Brunswick, like Fran McHugh in St. John and Donnie Grant here in Moncton. I mean, these two guys really, um, you know, they taught me, like, uh, how to handle certain situations in games, and and I would try to emulate, you know, the the lessons that they taught me in my games. And then, of course, there was a guy out in, in Alberta I mentioned it before, John Whelan, and he was just a super official. I mean, a great personality on the court and great control. And I always tried to emulate what John did. Uh, how would John handle this situation? And uh, and the thing about all of those guys, um, if, if they told me something, I had a tendency to listen to it because I knew I was going to learn something. And not only were these guys like, you know, great officials, but they they were great people as well. And, and and i often also respected you know the players and the coaches that i was involved with and 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 the game itself i said hey you got to give it your best shot every night and you know don't don't take anything for granted just do the best you can and and you know hopefully things will work out for you and i, I often thought you know as well that you know that to be successful like as an official or or in any endeavor in life, really, I think you have to have three things. One, one is you obviously have to have a little bit of talent. I mean, that goes without saying. But two, you, you have to help a, you have to get a lot of help along the way, you know, from mentors and evaluators and guys like, you know, the Grants and the McHughes and the Wheelins and the Kleins and the Cofields, you know, watching those guys and learning from those guys. And three, well, you got to have a bit of luck too. And I was fortunate enough in my career to. You know, I had some great mentors and some great advisors. And, and with their help and guidance, that, uh, a lot of that success uh, really is owed to them. And, um, and that would be uh, sort of like the icing, icing on the cake, I guess. Well,
1: Dick, uh, if you ever end up uh, officiating uh, one of my high school team's games that I coach, I'm going to have some pretty high expectations. And I expect <laughs> you to give me the same leeway you gave Charles Barkley. If I get a little bit heated, all right. So, just just saying.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you would be a prince, my friend. <laughs> of course, of course.
1: Well, Dick, it was an absolute uh, a pleasure talking to you and and, and hearing your stories, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast.
0: Well, Phil, you know it's uh, you know thank you for you know for inviting me in and giving me the opportunity to. You know, pass along some of my experiences that uh, like I say, it was a great ride, and uh, yeah, maybe uh, you know in this time of this uh, this foolish virus going on here, maybe just so get some people's mind off of that thing and uh, yeah, we'll move on I guess awesome, thanks, Dick. Thank you, Phil. Take care, my friend.
1: That was Dick Steves of Moncton New Brunswick, as you heard, refereed all over the world and uh, very uh, importantly, right now, the 92 Barcelona Olympics. He ref the dream team, so uh, great chatting with Dick there. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share about the podcast, please reach out. You can find me on, uh, on Twitter at Canada's Court. You can also send me an email Canada's Court Podcast at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating and review. Let me know what you think and uh, maybe even how we can improve. I'm always looking to get better. Uh, but yeah, please, uh, please feel free to do that. That's, uh, that's all for this episode of Canada's Court.